new year from all of us here at Centering the Margins. And if I'm not mistaken, it looks like Cisco is back for more. Turns out I didn't quit, party people. Happy New Year and welcome back. We missed you over our break, but we were really grateful to have it. So welcome back to the rested and relaxed Centering the Margins, the companion podcast to the book, How to Teach Contentious Issues in the Classroom by Francisco Ramos, available for $4.99 on Apple Books. As always, I'm Michael Betsecond, and I'm joined today by the author himself, Cisco Ramos. And we are so glad you came back this year to join us. If you're finding us for the first time, welcome. Be sure to check out our previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast service that you prefer. This week, we unpack anti-racism in the classroom and learning community. Uh, Cisco, are you there? Oh, I'm here. Let's do this. Oh, dude. Mm. I always end up talking about your quotations, and I don't mean to. I think that's like really contrived, but you did a really good job picking things that felt very salient to the topic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, what's funny is putting this together. It's sort of like, God, man, how do I how do I start this? You know, um, yep, because every single one of them, they're very, very different. And then you get in this whole thing about like, there's so many qualified people or there's so many people who have said so many things. Um, mm. So, yeah, this one was hard because I think uh, there were a handful of other people who are um, whose writings I was thinking about. But this one stuck uh, stuck out to me. No, I mean, it, I think I guarantee you the handful of other people. Are they uh, more contemporary than Morrison or are they older than Morrison? Um. I'm not going to say older around the same generation around the same. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, old to be like <laughs> this guy no, in no, 17, I mean, whatever, you know, he's uh, right. right. That's <laughs> why I didn't know if you were like pulling like Amari Cesar or like Paolo Freire. Like I didn't know who you were, if you were going to like engage them because they technically are older than Morrison. So, yeah. Um, but no, this, this particular quotation, I remember the day that I was actually, um, the day that I was helping to to go through this section and doing the close edit, and uh, I read this particular quotation from Morrison, and I think I read it maybe no less than ten times because mm-hmm. I just I needed to hear this. Yeah, because I was I I had just had some stuff happen at work that was really really frustrating. And it was it was exactly what this quotation is saying. So I'm going to read it out loud so that we have it on tape uh, formally. So uh, the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language and you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says, your head isn't shaped properly, so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Somebody says, you have no art, so you dredge that up. Somebody says, you have no kingdoms, so you dredge that up. None of this is necessary. 
there will always be one more thing. Toni Morrison. I, I literally, I read that. Like I said, it became a mantra. And I ended up sharing this particular quotation with uh, a group of, of um, emerging documentary artists that are black and brown. Yeah. And the way that this text hit them, I mean, the conversations, it, it reverberated for weeks. Mm. So I just, I am grateful to you for bringing into my knowledge base this particular statement by the queen mother herself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's so relatable. I mean, it, yeah. it, it doesn't matter sort of, you know, black, brown, um, Native American. It, it's relatable. There's always going to be something else. There's always going to be one more thing, regardless of how many obstacles, you know, I know one of the psychological traps um, that's very easy to fall into is like, oh, okay, I've done all of these things. Like we've hit the end or there is a bottom. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely not. No, there's no. always something else. There's there's no such thing as a bottom. Right. Exactly. 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 And I and uh I think to your point, when we so you know, this chapter is specifically about anti-racism, most notably in the classroom and in learning communities. And you know, because it just feels ever present right now the Trump administration's actions against this exact practice, like mm. bringing in anti-racism into the classroom. You, yeah. you talk about, it feels like we would have hit bottom well before now. Well, that, that felt like a, a pretty jarring bottom, but I don't actually know that that's the bottom. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, that's the thing. Like there is no bottom, you know? Right. Um, right. What, like when people suggest there's a bottom, like, what does that even mean? Right. You know, like that, that's sort of the, the immediate question that comes to my mind because, you know, we can, we can talk about the current administration. We could talk about, you know, policies or practices or, right. you know, exactly. what were the common descriptors that people used 60 years ago? Um, it can always get worse. Right. They can, right. you know, things can easily be invented. Um, and that yeah. invention becomes an obstacle. That's the whole idea behind the construction of race. Right. That like, exactly. like, so that's a part of me again, when people say like, this is the bottom, my immediate thought is you really have no understanding of your own history. Right. That's really mm. what you're telling me. You have no clue. And because you have no clue, um, you know, it's hard to say that somebody's going to feign surprise or going right. to be surprised. I, I truly am coming at it from you. You don't know your own history. Right. And I feel I've just I, I feel I pity you. I feel I feel sorry for you. Like that's right. I don't know how you operate day to day. Um, you know, how do I describe it? Um, DeSosa Santos called it learned ignorance. Like people are deliberately right. not taught things. You're deliberately taught to be ignorant about certain things so that the very thing that you're ignorant about can be continued. 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think if you're going to jump into a topic like anti-racism, specifically in classrooms, specifically in learning communities, I note that, you know, the way in the gate to open this, 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 this door effectively, if you will, um, is that you have a very specific set of key terms that you are defining prior to the discussion. And I know that we did the same thing in the last, uh, in the last chapter, in the last episode, we had some very specific um, key terms, but I think this one in particular feels a little bit more um, uh, significant. I don't, I don't want to belittle previous work, but I think that to be able to have a discussion of what it means to be anti-racist yeah. You have to kind of define things that have made for both the construction, which you talked about earlier, just a moment ago of race and the things that have therefore then created these isms that we, uh, we either have to work around, work under or work through. Mm. Yeah. And, and yeah. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, which particular key terms, why you chose those and, and how those kind of play out in your classroom? Sure. So I'm going to just, I'm just going to list them. Um, uh, implicit bias, uh, race, okay. by the way, the word race is in quotation marks, uh, white supremacy, anti-racism and intersectionality. And why these terms? Um, if I had to explain to someone who has never been to the United States to try to describe what is going on with this idea of uh, race, the practice of racism, what role does history play in, in these formations? And, you know, truly, why, why is this America's original sin? Why does it become further right. entrenched? Right. Um, and what, what, can pe- what can people really do about it, right? So this whole idea of implicit bias, which is absolutely everybody, everywhere right now, um, but it is... <laughs> You know, this unconscious attribution of particular qualities, right? We always call it like these snap judgments that people make in a particular, in a particular context or a particular scenario. And traditionally, the answer that is given is like, well, you know, if we're aware of our implicit biases, then we have a greater of awareness so that there's a higher likelihood that, um, you know, we'll be able to catch ourselves before we do something uh, foolish, right? Right, Um, right. I am, you know, so I I would certainly start there, but I would also caveat it in saying that, yeah, we can talk about implicit bias, but it's simply not enough. Um, Right. The awareness, the personal side of it's one thing, but there's no question in my mind that there is a direct connection and direct link between what, um, between the personal side of of things and the structural side of things. Those are absolutely unconnected. So when people talk about unconscious bias, um, how people are treated based on based on that unconscious bias certainly has structural implications. So um, implicit bias, you know, right now there isn't a, a better term to get at what's going on internally with individuals. Right. Uh, race, again, um, how beliefs how, um, get reified. We, we, we look at people's skin color. Um, and it's way less fluid here in the U.S. than it is in, 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 in Latin America. It's really black, white, other is sort of how it's been for, right. for centuries. Um, but it's a social construct and, you know, it's just something we invented, right? Racism existed right. first. We invented race um, and we're kind of stuck with it, uh, at least for now. Um, white supremacy. 
I truly don't know how anyone could credibly talk about race or racism or any of this other stuff without talking about white supremacy. Right. Um, it is the absolute bedrock, um, I, a bedrock idea that's been around for centuries. And it's essentially a false belief that white people are superior to those of quote unquote other races is, is the, you know, 30,000 foot, um, definition, but that false belief enters er anything from public policy, uh, enters anything from our attitudes, how we treat people, who we vote for, um, you know, how funds are allocated, um, through policy to just every aspect of American society you can think of it's there. Um, right. anti-racism. And again, I'm emphasizing this point of it's an active process of identifying and eliminating racism by changing systems, organizational structures, policies and practices. And at the end of the day, the point is so that power is redistributed and shared equitably and is something that we do all the time. Can it, I, can I pause you for a second? Mm-hmm. You used a very specific word. You said equitably rather than equally or fairly. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about why you didn't use a different word? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good catch. It's a really good catch. And that's a great question. Um, so equitably is to more finely attune and be more sensitive to the histories and experiences that... Um, that determine and inform uh, one's circumstance, knowing fully well that um, if we're talking about organizational structures, policies and practices, systems, um, anti-racism efforts are gonna look a little bit different. Um, so if I were to use the word right. like uh, equally, it means we're gonna use the same approach and it's gonna be applied equally across all groups, all people, etc. So if we have a pie, everybody gets the same amount of pie. Yeah, essentially, essentially, without really taking into consideration of like, you know, gee, you know, uh, so-and-so's experience has been informed by A, B, and C. What are some practical things that we can do to help um, alleviate uh, some of this historical and policy baggage, right? So it's mm -hmm. really trying to more finely attune and more sensitively address um, um, address these different areas. So again... There is a whole, whole discussion around what's the difference between equality and equity. Uh, I land on equity almost every single day uh, with this Same. one. <laughs> yeah. Same. Yeah. And I mean, it, there's just, and, and I would argue there's really not much of a, a way around it. Um, right. I, and, I, I, I know a couple of years and I, I'm sorry if I'm stepping no, on No, 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 no. It's good. I know a couple of years back there was a, a, a huge, and I'm going to say a huge white lash uh, surrounding a, a, it was like a YouTube video that was going around. And I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think you played it in class. Um, but it was the one where, uh, it was a track race basically. And, uh, it was two white folks. Um, and so it was a, it was a white man and a white woman and they were like the race started. Um, and right before the race started, there were like two gigantic boulders that came up in front of, um, the black, black man and black woman who were there and the white woman kind of like stumbled mm -hmm. uh and the white guy has just been running he's just been great the white woman stumbles 
And then like she's down for like a hot second, hops up, and then is basically able to catch the white guy not too far after. Mm-hmm. But like there's like a wait time on the boulder that is in front of the lanes of the two black folks. And then mm-hmm. they finally drop and like they're attempting to catch up. And so you get an opportunity to see the gap actually played out. And I remember there was a huge white lash surrounding that because mm-hmm. it, it gets at this exact thing, you know, the difference between equality and, and, and equity or excuse me. Yeah. Equality and equity. Um, and basically it's this whole idea of like, and while they, they were running, they were kind of throwing these like 400 years of slavery, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Jim Crow laws, a black codes. Like they were throwing things at the, the black runners so that you could demonstrate why you know, they were not able to be up to the same speeds. And so mm-hmm. when we talk about equality and equity, it's that baggage, like you were talking about, that baggage that is being carried by a different set of people, mm-hmm. different set of people. And so, and I think it's interesting, you even talked about earlier, as far as like, when we're talking about race, it's framed as black, white, other in the United States. Um, and, you know, it is it is socially okay to be racist to brown people officially because they're not black people. So you can say snide comments like speak English. You can say snide comments like, you know, all my Mexicans are from El Salvador. You can say stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And people go, well, yeah, that's not as bad as if you'd said something about a black person. Yeah. Well, cause it, it becomes easy. It, there's a false equivalence there, right? It's sort right. of like exactly. it relativizes. Exactly. Well, it wasn't right. as bad as this. So why are you complaining? And it's it's like, come exactly. on, man. Like, like what kind of garbage exactly. is that? What are you, what are you doing? You know? Right. Right. Um, yeah, we see that. So, we see that all the time. There's no question. So your last term down here. Uh, intersectionality is a good one. Uh, dis- <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's great. It's complicated. Um, but it describes it how race, class, gender, and other individual characteristics intersect and overlap to create unique modes of discrimination and privilege. I, I absolutely uh, fully appreciate the complexity of this, um, of this term because it's really hard mm. to try to think think of or put into practice potential, I'm going to, I'm going to say various ways and means through which freedom or some kind of liberation can be achieved. If there isn't a way to say, okay, if I think I know what the end goal is, is there a way for me to analyze and understand all of these different characteristics um, that, that sort of inform who I am and how they play out? Because if I don't have this sense of understanding, not only within myself, but of um, a certain uh, situation, then there really, it, it really becomes near impossible to, exactly. to dream exactly. of what freedom might actually look like, actually right. in practice. You know? So that's the part, again, where it's incredibly hard. You know, I think it's, it's easy, quote unquote, easy to, to talk about race. <laughs> it's right. quote unquote easy to, you know, with, with class and gender. But putting all of that together, um, it gets really complicated really, really quickly. And I think the point there is that through the complexity uh, comes clarity. It's really interesting to kind of get into this idea, specifically through intersectionality of who is and who doesn't have what kind of privilege at any given time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, for example, you know, I want to acknowledge 
you know, Cisco, you and I have had a conversation pretty extensively about the fact that all of these episodes are from the perspectives of two cisgendered hetero men, you know, black, brown, but still both men. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we understand that there is certain, uh, I want to say accoutrement, but there's certain uh, ideas that we're never going to be able to really stand in because we've never been in those shoes. Yeah. And so, you know, in a classroom, I would imagine it's really easy, especially if you believe in a, a very top down, you know, I, the professor, am imparting wisdom to you, the student. I think it's very easy to gloss over a singular perspective that you've never had and never have to have had to have. Um, and so I, I'm curious, how do you tease out for yourself as a, as an educator, how do you ensure that you don't get caught in the trap of, of basically monodimensionality, um, in perspective when you're mm. presenting things? Mm, that's <laughs> when you're presenting things, that's a really great way of framing it. Um, I, the first thing I, I, I do is, um, when it comes to presenting knowledge, uh, content, I take a lot of humility. Mm. First, first and foremost, I think humility is a, is a lost art form that is so, so central to, to any classroom. Um, right. You know, teachers historically are always conceived of as, you know, these purveyors of knowledge, they have all the answers. Um, students, you're supposed to be receptacles, um, all of that, mm. all of that really um, mm-hmm. anachronistic thinking. You know, right. the, the, the reality is, is um, that basic idea has never really existed. And it's a very, it's a very middle class and very upper middle class idea that this is what knowledge is. Mm-hmm. This is what purpose it serves. Um, and this is what you're supposed to get out of this particular experience. Now, keep in mind, that doesn't take into consideration who your students are. Um, it, it, there's no question of culture, no question of relevance, no question of what communities, uh, the, you know, the, these particular schools happen to be in. Um, so it's, it's a universal claim, right? So again, I think a lot of humility is the first step, um, in taking this kind of approach. Um, Mm -hmm. the second one, I, I, I really believe is as best as one can just get heavily involved into the local community to figure out where people are coming from. Uh, what's going on? What do people really care about? Um, and, and starting mm-hmm. from there, mm-hmm. um, building up the classroom from the ground up. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I mean, I think that that very much roots you in uh, in the world around you and never allows you to be insular. Yeah. Um, and and it, it it basically takes in consideration that the world is going to push in at any given moment, even if not just for you, but definitely for your students. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's no question. I mean, there's a very, very old idea. And at least here in the States, we credit uh, John Dewey for writing it down. But basically, he was saying um, uh, what happens in the communities will eventually show up in the classroom. Yes. Um, yes. He, he wrote a book called uh, Education and Experience. And that was one of the arguments in that book. And, you know, that was written, I think, in the 1920s, 1930s. And mm-hmm. it's 2020 and we're still talking about it. So, you know, this, it's not like this idea is new or very groundbreaking. It's just sort of with this kind of experience um, and this kind of classroom, it's truly, how do we break things 
how do we take things apart and build them back up so that it's stronger and more reflective of who we're trying to teach and who we're trying to serve? Right, right. And I, and I, for example, you know, in this moment where COVID is happening, mm. the community is very inculcated in the classroom and vice versa. There's no way really, because a lot of times for a lot of people, the classroom is happening in the community because mm. we cannot be in the same space. We can't define it as this is academic and this is non-academic space. Mm-hmm. Everything is kind of blurred together in that way. Um, so so I, I think that, you know, you, you, you just kind of, uh, you've just brought the community definitively into the classroom with Absolutely. that statement, right? Absolutely. So I would imagine that your students might not be in the same space as you and may believe differently about themselves. They may believe, you know, uh, it's very easy to buy into specifically, and and I'll say white liberalism, you know, and Mm -hmm. King talks about this. It's very easy for you to buy into the idea of civility over justice, over equity, over any of those things. Um, because that's, it's uncomfortable to be in a space where we don't agree. And so if you could just get along so that we can all get along, that would make it easier. How do you, how do you, in a classroom setting, how do you engage that as a, as a convention one? And then two, how do you tease out that your students may be, I don't know, interacting with something like implicit bias? (laughs) So one of the sort of continue, um, I think the King also said, you know, one of the biggest problems with um, our our white moderates, right? The undecideds. Um, It always starts with, you've got, at the end of the day, it's it's being comfortable with being uncomfortable um, is where it starts. It it truly, and this is where I'm a big believer in, uh, reflective practices, right? If there is something that makes you uncomfortable, ask, why does it make you uncomfortable? What is it about an individual, a topic, um, you know, an argument? What is it that makes you uncomfortable? Um, and start there. I can think of plenty of, uh, instances in my own life where, um, you know, we've, I've, I've had, I've sat down across the table, well, meta, a metaphorical table, if you will. Um, <laughs> you know, and I'm talking to someone, having a very real conversation. And, you know, it, I think 90% of the time, um, you can start to see where somebody is coming from. And I think depending on mm-hmm. how that conversation goes, and it and obviously depends on your level of comfort and how well you know somebody. Um, so let right. me preface what I'm about to say with that. But most of the time, you know, it's it's really about insecurities or right. sensibilities. Exactly. It, it has, you know, it's not related centrally to what we're talking about itself, but it's the sensibilities around the thing that we're talking about. Um, right is why in certain instances people can feel threatened or people can feel uncomfortable or sometimes people just close down. Um, Mm. So it's really just pushing, okay, I don't feel comfortable in this scenario. Why? When, when reason and rationale would say, you know, we're in a classroom, I'm amongst peers. What is it about this? That's not jiving with me internally. Like what's going on? You know, that's one of the, what's one of the points of, that I really, really like about taking an intersectional approach is delving into that a little bit more. Um, And I know we talked about it last time, 
you know, can you even imagine what it would be like to unburden oneself of all of the baggage that we're carrying around? Um, mm-hmm. the, I mean, how can you truly let go of baggage if you don't know what you're carrying in the first place? Like, it's it's starting from from that point. You said you made the statement of, you know, looking around, understanding your surroundings, saying, I'm in a classroom, I'm amongst peers. I, I, I have personal experience where I know for a fact that I had students, not I didn't have students, I had classmates, mm-hmm. colleagues that did not see me as a peer. Yeah, They never were able to see or establish that the humanity that I was presenting was valid, valuable, and necessary within their space. Mm. So, you know, again, we go to this point where I can see a situation in a scenario where, you know, you have a, a student who, I mean, I'm a black, I'm an Afro-Indigenous man, right? I'm a mm-hmm. black kid for a lot yeah. of folks. All intents and purposes, they look, you know, I get looked at, they're like, hey, so how does it feel to have gotten into name the institution because of affirmative action? How does it yeah. feel to have gotten yeah. here rather than asking the reverse question of how does it feel <laughs> to have gotten here because of classism and the establishment of an endowment by name, whoever your great ancestor was that stole labor and land from us. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, I put it, I put it this way, right? Like, so this is a, uh... Two true vignettes, right? One of them was a friend of mine way back in the day. Uh, I'm not going to give names because, you know. No, that's fine. But a friend of mine back in the day, still really good friends. Um, you know, they live back in Texas. Uh, actually, ironically enough, got into Duke uh, in undergrad, right? So That's awesome. And I remember vividly in high school when we're all learning, you know, okay, letters are coming in. Oh, my God. Are you, are you excited? Yeah, it's going to be great, right? So you open these letters and they let you know. So as we're telling each other, I vividly remember one of our classmates telling this individual, the only reason why Duke let you in is because you're black. Mm. Had nothing to do with grades, had nothing to do with SATs, had nothing to do with classes, had none of this, right? Extracurriculars, um, none of it. When she told people that she got into Duke from this part of Texas, that is immediately where people went. Damn. Like that's the, that's one of the things I remember where it's sort of in, you know, and I think the opposite is also true with what you said. Um, you know, one of the things I learned early on in Michigan, and this is something I didn't know until I actually got there is that there are Michigan families. There are families who have, you know, three, four, in some cases, five generations deep that have all gone to the same school. Right. Um, you know, what do you, what do you do with that? Right. 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 Um, well, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you, I mean, you can, you can, uh, you go first, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> Words. No, I'm kidding. You know, but, but, but it becomes this very real thing, right? Like we, we always talk about, you know, you know, we started this conversation with this whole idea of like putting boulders in front of people. What happened? The opposite's also true. Like if you remove right. obstacles or you, right. as somebody's running down the field, you deliberately tilt the field down so that they have gravity working with them. With them. Right. You right. know, that that to me is sort of the 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 flip side to this. And and that's the part again, you know, 
I listen to another podcast called uh, The Black Guy Who Tips, and I'll give a shout out yeah. to, uh, to Ronnie yes. Karen. You know, yes. but, 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 you know, thank you. I, yes. I've been a long time listener. I'm, I haven't called him, but if they're listening, hey, <laughs> thank you. That, um, yes. But one of the one of the things that they brought up that I, I truly agree with is um, we'll have a quality when mediocre people get large, large contracts. Right. When, when mediocre people, when you don't have to be excellent just to get to the same place. Exactly. 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 And that's, I, I totally agree with that. That's a, a, something that I personally ascribe to. And I wouldn't be surprised if, cause I follow him on Twitter. So his name, he goes by Mblaku. I wouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I would not be surprised if that's the reason that I do. I, I very much believe in the idea of moving towards black and brown mediocrity. Um, yeah. Just because it means that I, I get to go to the grocery store frumpled. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. Well, think <laughs> about it, man. Like, take, you know, you know, it's, 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 and it's a weird psychology to say that, right? Like it, success is mediocrity, right? But think about it, right? To, to get into a space and to be accepted into a space, it's sort of, you've got the whole respectability side of things. Your clothes, exactly. your, your clothes have to be pressed. Your hair has got to be a certain way. You've got the academic side. Your grades have to be really, really great. If not mm-hmm. sterling, then mm-hmm. you've got to think about, okay, extracurricular activities. Am I doing these, uh, things that honestly a lot of people get priced out of just simply because it, it's really expensive um exactly. to, to play football to play lacrosse um yeah. all of that stuff right yeah. um so again uh if it, here's another one uh if if you are a filmmaker and if you're a black filmmaker you can't make a crappy movie nope nope it, if it, you- it has to be, you know, world class, uh, world class up for awards, you know, mm-hmm. box office through the roof. Like it cannot be a flop. Right. At the end of the day, you don't represent yourself is what it is. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know what the point of that was. It's just sort of thinking, you know, th- this whole <laughs> but this idea of, you know, well, really you, this equity. Right. Well, no, Go ahead. You were, you were, you were driving at, I just want to, cause I think this, you do want us to land this plane appropriately. You were driving at the idea of the affirmative action selection into a space like a Duke for this friend of yours mm-hmm. and people looking at her and saying, you only got in cause you're black. Yeah. And we overlook the fact that she cured cancer. I'm sarcastically saying yeah. that, that I don't know if she, or friend does that, but it, we overlook all of those things. <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, like the the necessity of white supremacy is to ensure that the maintenance of the quote unquote lower classes and lower races are that should you choose to climb the rung, you must only do it in a sterling procedure. But anybody Mm -hmm. who is white may do it however they so choose to do it. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, no, I, I am also curious. So you're in this classroom, you have students who don't necessarily see the humanity of other students, but you then also have the internalized white supremacy of students who are students of color or marginalized students in their feeling of what they cannot achieve. Yeah. Well, How it, do you walk around that? <laughs> well, well, let's take a step back then, right? Like, so part of it is um the internal i'm gonna i'm gonna put on my academic hat for a minute but the internalization of 
of stories, right? Like what have you Mm -hmm. been told throughout your life, right? Whether that's from family, from friends, from society at large. um, Do you tell yourself that same narrative? Do you, Mm -hmm. are you defeating or taking yourself out of even the possibility of doing something simply because it conflicts with what you've been told your entire life? Right. You know, I see that all the time. Um, yeah, you know, like I, I can think of a lot of people who, and this is a, I'll, you know, break it down as much as I can. Um, Hey, that's a really good idea. You should totally, you know, start a small business doing X, Y, and Z. And it's like, I don't want to start a small business. Yeah. You know, and then I'll hear four or five different excuses about something or, you know, I really don't want to do this or, you know, go on the, go to the, um, go to the ledge and try to push a little bit further for this thing that I, that I that could work. It it might not, but simply because of the story we tell ourselves about what's possible. Right. Right. It's funny that you would talk about that. I, uh, this past week or not this past week, it was last week. Um, two of, uh, of Duke's, um, uh, professors had an opportunity to bring, uh, bring as in like virtually bring, but to connect with Fred (laughs) Wilderson, um, who's one of the leading Afro pessimists, you know, one of the things that he kind of talked about during his, his discussion was this idea of nobody ever being upset at a tired wheelbarrow. Nobody feels bad for a tired wheelbarrow because that's not a thing that we kind of would come to as a conclusion. And he was making the, the comparison to, you know, black bodies, and brown bodies that were just worn all the way out and the humanity of those bodies not being seen. Um, Mm -hmm. So I say that because I just had a conversation with a colleague the other day talking about the internalized exhaustion that they've Mm -hmm. experienced from the expectation to be always a utility rather than a human. And so I would also like kind of listening to the the thing that you were talking about as far as like folks being like, I don't want to start a small business. I don't like the exhaustion from having to be excellent all the time mm-hmm. is a real thing. Yeah. It's a real thing. Um, and that like I remember having grad students before I was in grad school talk to me and say, hey, sometimes there's, you know, they the the adage that says that. of your work takes 20% of your energy Mm. and then 20% of the work actually takes that other 80%. They're like, there are going to be times where it makes the most sense for you to take the B. Yeah. 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 There, there, there are certain things that aren't worth it. Um, they're just not. Um, and that exhaustion, I mean, I get it because it's not just, it's not just the work. It's not just the 80, 20, it's sort of all of the stress and the anxiety that you have to, well, you, I'm, I'm going to say that a lot of people um, go through just to get the opportunity to then do the work. Right. Right. You know, exactly. there, there's a, there's a really, um, uh, leave it to Disney. Um, what was it? <laughs> Hidden figures, right. Is it, is, yes. is, is a great example where, mm-hmm. you know, you have brilliant, black women who are out here doing incredible work, but just to get the opportunity to go to school, you had to go to court. Yep. <laughs> it, it, none, none, you know, everything about how smart you were just didn't matter. Right. So you had to go to court. Okay. You had to do that. 
then you actually have to go to school. Okay, you got to do that. And then it was something else or um, having to learn the new programming language that didn't exist yet. Um, right. It was always something else so that then she, they, you could just do the work. Um, right. Right. It was never about the intelligence or your no, ability or your no, positionality no, 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 relative no. to it. But, but I think that, you know, to your point though, is that there's always something else. There's always, we, we, we keep circling back. There was a boulder. What exactly does the boulder look like is always mm-hmm. the question. It's never like, it's one thing to make work that just comes with general challenges. Right. So mm-hmm. if we're trying to prime example, we're doing that right now. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if, if, you know, to birth this podcast and to birth this book, there's yeah. a labor that goes with it. That's, mm-hmm. that's completely uh, different than structural supremacies that come into play that make mm-hmm. the labor of bringing a creative thing to past mm-hmm. even harder. Yeah. Even harder. Um. So, yeah, and I, I, I think that that's something that, you know, when we talk about the way it shows up in a classroom or in a learning community, like those are practices and things that I can definitively acknowledge. You know, I've, I've had instructors and professors look at me before and, you know, I'm trying a new concept. Mm-hmm. And I, one, didn't have exposure to this concept prior to. So, like the idea of prior knowledge mm-hmm. is, you know, and in, in I have a... a there's a, a board member in the Chapel of Carborough City Schools board. Uh, he talks about this all the time. He goes, and when, when we're referring to gifted children, yeah. he's like, there is the gifted theory. Yes, there are savants that walk among us, mm-hmm. but there are also students that have just been exposed to things early enough that yeah. they've been able to wrap their brains around it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll think of it, I'll put it this way. Um, I know people who's, Parents were professors and were exposed to all kinds of wild stuff. Exactly. Um, or they could go to their parents who could help them exactly. with whatever it is that they were working on for graduate school, mind you. Oh, my gosh. Y- yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like, like how do you? <laughs> what? No, nah, I don't even know what that is. You know, <laughs> like, like it's, it's hard to convey that, you know, with a lot of things, um, you know, I essentially couldn't ask for help in a lot of ways from a lot of different people when I was 17 and started in college because the, a lot of people around me could not help me. Right. You, you were the I, I, pioneer in, in certain ways. Yeah. And, um, and I think, you know, that's a, that's a, a dynamic that, you know, I, I just can't even fathom like, Hey mom, I'm having issues with X, Y, and Z. Can, can you look at the code for me? Right. Uh, exactly. Like, like, come on, what are you talking about? No. Um, <laughs> right. Right. You know, and, and that's the part I, I, again, I think certain, certain inequities have been so normalized yes. that whenever, whenever questions are asked, I think that's where a lot of discomfort begins. Exactly. And, you exactly. know, there's this great saying where it's um, to, to a lot of people, um, equity and equality feel like oppression. And, yes. In certain ways, you yes. know, that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, and I've also know, again, I've had white friends in the past who 
Um, again, one of the ambiguous things about being brown is you can fit in or you can stand out depending on an array of things. And I think in this moment, I fit in as being white. Um, mm. Who told me, I think over dinner one time, you know, like one of the things he's really afraid of is people be is this notion of equality. The subtext to how he said it was basically, or if he were to continue that that sentence, it would have been because I will no longer have this privilege. Right. 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 And and yeah. it's this wild open, at least in that moment, this open secret that became explicit. Right. Right. You know, and my my other um interesting story about this one uh is um uh in Wilmington, right? Wilmington, Wilmington, North Carolina. This was a handful of years ago. Um Lacey and I go to the beach, we're there, and there is a um well, actually, we went to a restaurant. We're walking around. We're trying to get breakfast. There was an elderly couple who invited us to sit down because there's not a seat in the joint. So we sit down. We just started talking. And granted, this guy must have been in his 70s minimum. Graduated from Duke uh, in like the 50s, right? Wow. Maybe. Yeah. No, no, no. He's definitely older. All right. <laughs> I'm doing the math. Of my definitely older. I just remember him saying, I graduated from Duke in the, you know, 54, 55, something like that. Yeah. Um, and we're sitting there, we're eating. He looks over at me and this was in 2016. And he's like, you know, the, the state is just changing so much. I live in North Raleigh and I just, there's a lot of, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's hard to say out loud. There's just a lot of Mexicans in the area. And the thing that really wow. made, made me laugh on the inside, and this is where I think, um, uh, I, I'm good at being calm in absurd moments. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, we get trained in that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, and, and it was just, I was like, wow, how does he see me? Like it's sunny. My skin is really tan. I'm wearing this hat that says Duke. Um, mm -hmm. and I was like, dude, you could absolutely be talking about me, my mom, uh, a litany of people that I know. Yep. And, you know, it's, it's this whole idea of, you know, when we're talking about this internalized discomfort that comes out in learning communities, um, well, the next question would have been, okay, well, well, why? Well, like, what is it about the presence of black and brown bodies that makes you uncomfortable? And, right. you know, if we take a step back and if I put on my academic hat on, black and brown bodies by the very nature are always going to be political. Yeah, there's no, there's no idea. No. Yeah, there, yeah, there's no the, just disconnecting those two things. You're absolutely right. Absolutely yeah. right. And you know, and it, it's you know, granted, it, people could easily say, like, "Well, he was eighty something," and I'm like, "Yeah, but that eighty something dude has kids. He probably taught his kids yes. some variation of what he was taught." Yes. And it becomes this sort of cultural inheritance that's passed down, right? Right. Um, well, and, and, and it shows up. It shows up in I our can, class. If, yeah, go on. Sorry. Well, I just, I, no, you're good. You're showing up in our classrooms. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you. I want to tease this out just a little bit, just a little bit before you go too far off. So the, I, the irony is that he probably applied to you the same conversation that we were talking about with your friend earlier, yeah. where your access to Duke is because of. Like when you, you have to play some of those logical lines out. If mm -hmm. we could extrapolate what his thoughts might have been, it will be because you are Mexican, that is why Duke has you in blah, blah, blah role, 
right? That's the first thing. The second thing, though, is because you are Mexican, you have now climbed a ladder that was not originally set up for you. Yeah. And so they will, it's the irony of ironies to apply this, this, uh, to apply this, this designation and weight to you, but not to see that because I am not, I have had kind of to your point earlier, I've had the board tilted towards me. So I have been lifted Mm -hmm. to not be able to see that applied in you. And then like you're saying, he's probably taught that to his kids. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think that's the disconnect, right? And I think that's why it makes people, to be, I'm, no, Graham, brown dude, talking about white folks. I think that's what makes a lot of white folks uncomfortable, right? It's one thing to say like, right. okay, we started this entire episode, you know, what are these definitions? Implicit bias. We can talk about how, you know, the raising of awareness under certain scenarios. And I'm like, okay, if you really want to apply this mm-hmm. and personalize it, mm-hmm. um, how do you deal with your parents if there yep. are aspects of what you were taught and had to unlearn, right? Exactly. Exactly. I, again, that that's I don't have any good answers, but it's sort of that's one of the central um, uh, dynamics that's on the table. What do you do with the inheritances that people try to give you? Exactly. Some of it you may have bought into. Some of it you probably discarded. Um, right. What do you do with that? Right. Well, and, and I can go even further. So it's, I, and I think, especially, you know, I, I'm going to acknowledge, so, you know, Afro-Indigenous man married to a white passing Latina woman. So, uh, you know, my in-laws um, definitely hit that point. What do you do with the inheritances that you've been handed? How do you yeah. work through that thing? Um, one of, and this is a story that I've told and they know I tell it. So I'm not, I don't feel like I'm releasing a family secret before we've worked through it as a family. But, um, so, and most people have forgotten, they hadn't even realized this action had occurred. So Hmm. when Carmen and I were first, you know, dating, um, we, uh, uh, my sister-in-law was graduating and um, it was her graduation weekend. We were going to like the graduation party and whatever. And my father-in-law's father, who was hmm. in his like <laughs> late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, yeah. He was at the place. And um, it was really interesting because we walked in. Carmen and I walked in. We drove up, found the house, drove up, you know, parked, uh, walked into the house. And, you know, my mother-in-law and I think my father, I think together they they came out and they're like, Hey, just want to let you know, you know, uh, pop-up is in the back. And so we're going to have <laughs> you hang out here because he's about yeah. to leave. We're going to have you hang out here for a little bit. And mm-hmm. like everybody left me sitting in the living room for like 20 minutes. Yeah. And it was, it was something that stuck with me. Because they didn't know how to how to be able to interact with that that what would have been potentially overt racialization. They yeah. didn't know what to do with that. So rather than talk to the individual who would have been in fault, and this is a man who had dementia, who already like uh, my father in law and mother in law, they're they're a blended family anyway. He was already attributing things to my mother-in-law that weren't happening. They were just like, we have no idea what he's going to say. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> which yeah. in some ways I wish I could have heard what he's going to say. Just be like, yep, 
Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 reminds me of this old NFL clip. Uh, they, he was who we thought he was. Exactly. You know? exactly. Dennis Green. Exactly. Dennis exactly. Green. I know yeah. exactly that statement that you're making. Yeah. They but were yes. who they thought they were. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go uh, on. You're go fine. On. This, is, this is what makes our conversations perfect. Um, but no, so that idea, though, was that they wanted me, the person who would have had the suppression put on, to be the one to make the, uh, the concession so that the yeah. individual who was doing the oppressing yeah. might feel their space the way that they're supposed to. Because it would be, quote unquote, disrespectful to confront the ignorance. Yeah. I mean, and, and this is a thing, man, like I'm telling you right now, the, this is this whole, I've, I've said the word sensibility is like four or five times minimum. Yep. Um, but it's that, <laughs> it's that basic, your vignette is, applies. And I even use this example in the class um, here, at least here in the American South, the debates around Confederate monuments, yes. what is worth remembering and why, yes. Yes. Um, you know, it's one thing to say in the abstract, uh, you know, it was really bad. The Civil War was really about slavery, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, cool. Um, can we get rid of these things about individuals, right? Right. Well, you know, it's it's a little more complicated, yada, yada, yada. It's about heritage. Yeah, right. Um, so and that's so, the, go on. Yeah. No, no, you, no, no. I, I was, please. <laughs> <laughs> But it, it becomes this thing uh, pretty quickly around it's very easy in the abstract. It's very hard when it's your own family. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And, yep. and this and this is the part of me, again, where sensibilities um, are nice in certain contexts and sensibilities um, delay change. Exactly. How exactly. people. And, and then I think this is worth being said explicitly. Um, sensibilities and people's feelings aren't more important than someone's life. Can and you I say that, that one more time. People's sensibilities and feelings are not more important than someone's life. That, that reminds me of Bettina Love's uh, statement about incrementalism. Mm. Um, so she says, while you all are making incremental changes, and that's referring to like adjustments in police reform, uh, some adjustments in housing, some adjustments in food deserts and where they're located and how we may or may not restrict people's access to food and clean it, include clean food, those kinds of things. While you're making incremental changes, we are out here dying in the streets. Yeah. 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 That, that's, um, yeah. Simplicity. I don't, yeah. That's, <laughs> I, I, and I think that's to, to your point, like relative to the way in which we remember people, I think, uh, William Sturkey, who, um, had the New York best times, uh, selling book Hattiesburg. Um, Mm. he is quoted saying something, or I'm going to paraphrase, but talking about, uh, about memory, like what gives somebody the ability to be remembered. Mm. And so when we talk about that, we, we, we wanted to move, you know, if, if we really want to think about the functions of memory, uh, uh, you know, uh, Dia de los Muertos, right? Is the mm-hmm. day of the dead. So we we want to ensure that ancestors are remembered so that mm-hmm. they don't, it's like the second death is the loss of memory to that person. We've talked about it. Yeah. Um, it's funny, you have a lot of white individuals who destroyed people, who actively tried to ensure that we would never remember who those folks were, that they were ever humans, that they mm-hmm. ever had anything, 
that they that everyone buys into the idea of meritocracy. You have a lot of these white oppressors who have been like literally concrete, put in concrete, literally put in concrete, name a building, name a person, give a mm-hmm. statue, whatever. You know, I just had a conversation this morning uh, about J. Edgar Hoover, who's like mm. one of the most lethal white people towards black leadership. Yeah. Like, I forget who said it, but there's this idea of like, we don't have a ton of like black folks that just exist any longer. Like all of the, a lot of our, our black intelligentsia either died from white supremacist ideas, like, you know, lack of healthcare and things of that nature uh, died of being literally assassinated mm-hmm. or have been run off into other places. Mm-hmm. Like in our currently living in exile only now in the last, I would say 30 years, has there been a resurgence to ensure that we are able to keep certain folks safe so that they can live long enough to give us their intelligence until they are done breathing, like Mm. (laughs) until they decide to give up the ghost. (laughs) Yeah. And I I mean, and and that's, how do I describe it? You know, but you can imagine the fear that must have been within certain, I'm going to say certain, not all, certain white communities to go to those lengths to drive black and brown folks away. Oh, yeah. One of the oh, central, yeah. you know, and, and that and that's, the again, you know, it's imagining a fear that never existed in real life. Mm-hmm. It's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a defining feature of memory. Yes. Why, why certain spaces, why certain individuals, um, why certain entities are allowed to still exist um, is because of that, that simple, Oh my goodness. If if, if this happens, then there'll be, you know, fill in the blank, right. With, with something. Right. Um, You know, that's the part of me again, where, you know, one of the difficulties um, of this class, you know, and, and is in bridging, you know, with what happens in the communities, happens in the classrooms, it's just rooting it in history. Um, you know, that this whole idea of our, um, our historical amnesia and learned ignorance is, is one of the, um, is one of our, our biggest instruments as, as a society, because we can't right. really make any progress because we're continually having to establish a premise. Right. And then not make much progress. Right. Right. The it's funny that you would talk about um, this this fear that existed and was pervasive in um, in in white community. Part of the white fear that 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 terror um, has to be uh, attributed to to Thomas Dixon with relation to uh, the book The Klansman, which is a historical romance of um, uh, of of the Ku Klux Klan, and also this idea that you know was then adapted by D.W. Griffith um, mm-hmm. and turned into a Birth of a Nation, and then was celebrated by yeah. uh, by presidents. So, like part of that yeah. definitely exists in that space of how did we cement the idea of Black Terror? Uh, yeah. Because prior to that, you know, there was there was a concern about Black men 
being hypersexualized, but it was not mm-hmm. nearly to the extent. As a matter of fact, there was kind of a like uh, a development that we were lazy, that we you know were too stupid, all those things. So the idea that we because we had to be able to be uh, to be those things to be able to be farm hands and in the house yeah. and all this other thing, we had to be malleable. But yeah. you know, once once slavery is abolished. And, you know, the idea that black individuals could be deemed in peer group, oh, we have yeah. to make these folks horrifying. We have to yeah. make them terrifying. And, you know, I, I, there's a, a quote, uh, quotation, excuse me, from, um, from Thomas Jefferson uh, when he's talking to, to John Holmes discussing the Missouri question. And this is actually mm-hmm. in the works of Thomas Jefferson um, from, uh, I think, like 1820. Um, Mm. anyway, but he says this and I quote, but as it is, we have the wolf by the ears and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is in one scale and self-preservation in the other. And this is referring to the idea of slavery. So, you know, they're not trying to have a Haitian revolution happen around here. And that idea gets inculcated and we see it in the Klansmen, and then we see it in the birth of a nation, and we see this concern that at some point black terror is going to happen, rather than ever being able to see that white terror is all we've ever known. Yeah. Yeah. And I you know, and the way that the way that um, you know, as you were beautifully, beautifully, I'm gonna say preaching, testifying. <laughs> <laughs> but but basically, you know, it's justification. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. That that's really, you know, you're going on and on and I'm like, yeah, you're justifying what you got. And mm-hmm. you know, that that's all it is to me. Um, well, if we if we do this or if we if we change, you know, th- this thing that's ne- truly never happened in the history right. of this country. Right. Um you know, so what are we talking about? You know, so you right. know, even that quote, I'm like it, it's a false equivalence. What are, what are we talking about? If We've got a we've got a wolf by the ear, and I'm like, no, you don't, stupid. You know, that's, <laughs> you know, but I but truly, like that's that's what goes through my mind when I read some of these old documents right. and the projections that are put on the page. It's it's like, what do you? That doesn't exist, right? Well, I mean, you can you can go even further if we can return to Wilmington, North Carolina, where mm-hmm. you and your beloved were hanging out. You know, we can go back to the uh, racial insurrection of 1898. Yeah, we can see who was actually doing that thing. And it was the white folks who came in and slaughtered 60 black people and ran over 300 of the rest of them out of town. That's why if you go to Wilmington, it's not completely white, but it's definitely not as brown and black as it used to be. Well, look at the look at the statues, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's all you need to know. Look, Look at the statues like, you know, I mean, what people chose and and spent money, probably tax money, to put up, undoubtedly tax money to put up. Undoubtedly. So that again, again, that that's the part of it again where, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just it's wild, it's illogical. Um, not only is it you know Morrison's is it one more thing, but you know, frankly, um, racism for a lot of for a lot of people is very profitable. Yes, both psychologically and economically, um, yes. people benefit. People benefit materially and, exactly. you know, it's, it's easy to say, um, 
we'll, we'll, we'll work on these things. But if us working on these things means that I am losing something psychologically or uh, economically, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm, then I'm against it. I exactly. won't say I'm against it, but you know, I won't tell you who I voted for. Right. Right. And in, in, even in that space where, you know, uh, and I think we've talked about this a little bit, the idea of individual rights. It is my right to vote for who I want to vote for. It is my right to have what I need to have for my family. It is my right to protect myself. It is my right. There's, there's never an idea that is your right to be a member of a community and it is the privilege that you have to possess mm. your self-identity. Yeah. We don't ever engage in that. And I can imagine in a classroom for any student, the idea to give them back their agency in that way, mm. to actively engage in the community in that way, and to realize that my job isn't to concern myself with myself. My job is to concern myself with the least of these, to bring the person who has the least agency to speak and give them that ability. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think of it as, you know, when we, when we, people always talk about civics or citizenship or rights, we never talk about responsibilities or obligations. Exactly. Exactly. Ever, 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 ever. We don't, we don't, (laughs) because, you know, people are like, oh, it means I got to do something for someone else, man, you know, but but truly (laughs) like, come on, you know, what is this? Well, that's part, that's part of it too. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, well, and there, then we have rights. to agree as to whose job it is to to police, and I will use that word intentionally, to police mm-hmm. the responsibilities. Like, you see what I'm saying? Somebody, if we're going to have responsibilities, somebody's got to say, that is your responsibility now. Yeah. And the other word I was thinking about is accountability. Right. Nobody, nobody likes to be held accountable for the stuff that they do or say. Not at all. Not at all. So again, you know, that's one of the reasons why to get back to the classroom. <laughs> um, but the community but, but, just pushed in. <laughs> yeah, the community pushed in. But again, this is where I, I, I truly, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not kidding when I say building culture from the ground up um, is so important for a lot of the things that we said, because it serves as the building blocks for, for, where, we're, for where we're trying to go. Right. Um, you, you, it, there's got to be responsibility. There's obligations. Sure, there's authority slash sanction slash accountability. Um, but I think more importantly, in addition to everything that we've also just said, it's you know what do we want the glue to hold this thing together, mm-hmm. right? What is the culture? Mm-hmm. Me, I, w- I would say, yeah, notions of trust and care are absolutely the center of it. Right. Um, and, and you know the the other thing I was thinking about. Um, um, with some of these uh, contentious issues, particularly around issues of of racism um, and bias, if I care about you enough to tell you the truth, that means I love you. Exactly. Exactly. That's that. I think it, that central point gets lost in all of this. Where if I if right. I'm telling you the truth, man, that's coming. That's coming from a place of care. It's right. not. It's not an attack. It's not this. It's not that. I care about you because I love you because I love you. I'm telling you the truth. And right. that to me is really um, something that often gets overlooked. So 
I mean, and, and as you talk about this and really pivoting more directly back to the classroom, I think it's really easy as an instructor to want to hold students accountable, to want to assess them, to prove to one yourself and to them that they actually are knowledgeable in the material. But also, uh, I think it's really easy for us as as um, as instructors to potentially lose sight of the the student because you're like, I just really need you to get a hold of this thing. And or you expect a student to like figure it out on their own. You don't want to give mm -hmm. them all the answers because you need them to have some semblance of, of, of resistance to build that muscle so that they can learn how to do this when you're not there to guide them. How do you avoid having, um, you know, assessments, for example, that are biased against student success? And, you know, what are grading practices that you put in place to ensure that students no matter what their background is, especially if you're a student who's like supporting family or, or doing other things while also being in school, yeah, uh, are able to be successful. Yeah. So, the, so there, there's two, there's two big ones and I'll break them down there here, here in a moment. So the first one is around classroom assessment techniques, which is basically um, a series of practices and I'll break some of them down here in a moment, but basically a series of practices that let me know what a student knows um, uh, in real time or doesn't know in real time, right? Now, mm -hmm. for me personally, we can talk about formative assessment, which means, you know, uh, are we really keeping track of, what, of, of students' growth and learning in the moment or through a semester? Or do I just care about a summative assessment? Meaning, is it really just about the final grade? Right. Uh, now, my own experience, and there are disciplinary reasons why, again, I'm a trained social scientist, I really care about students' growth during the semester. Right. Um, the reason, the big reason why is I don't know what somebody knows when they walk through the door. So, right. you know, in, in the guidebook, um, there are a series of activities that are thematically organized. So there are some around how to assess prior knowledge. So, for example, a background knowledge probe, which uh, a very practical way of going about doing this is... Um, you know, is developing a very short or simple questionnaires at the beginning of a course. It could be a practice quiz. Mm -hmm. um, some of the questions could be very, very easy, things they should know. Some could be very, very hard. Some could be somewhere in the middle. But again, just to give you a sense of what do people actually know. Um, one minute papers, right? Very simple. Um, well, when we're in a physical classroom, but since, <laughs> you know, hey, open a Word document, right? Take one minute and write down, you know, what is the most important point that you learned today, right? right? It doesn't have to be perfect, doesn't have to be polished, and just email it to me. Now, if we're in a classroom, I'd say just leave it on your desk and I'll come around to pick them up. Um, muddiest points, right? What, mm -hmm. is, you know, hey, we did all these readings, we had a lecture, it was beautiful. What is something you didn't understand and, and why? Right, right. You know, these very, very, and again, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? You could easily call this equity by any other name, right? You, you really could. There, these aren't, it's, it's not really difficult. It's just sort of how do we integrate these practices, um, as we're going along, um, right. another one, right? So that's theme one, right? Uh, background knowledge pro probe. Another one is, you know, how do we assess, how do we assess skill and synthesis as well as a uh, critical and creative thinking, this could be, um, you know, one sentence uh, summary, for example. Can you tell me in one sentence why this idea or concept is important? 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and the whole point here is, can you encourage students to take um, what is presented to them, you know, in a book, in a text, in a lecture, and try to get them to put it in their own words for you? For me, now, this mm-hmm. is this truly is like my definition of learning. Can somebody say whatever it is that we're talking about in their own terms? And right. if so, they've probably internalized a good chunk, maybe perfect, it might not be perfect, but they have a really good idea of what we're talking about and I can work with that, right? Right. Um, so there's other examples and I don't wanna get too technical, um, but they're in the guidebook, no question. So the second one is around um, towards a more equitable grading, right? Where I lay out very, very clearly different kinds of grading on one hand you know what we what could be called traditional forms of grading meaning grades are final uh we place students in a hierarchy we've got this notion of a b and c right. passing failing those kind of things um there's an over emphasis of content at the expense of skills and sometimes you know even the learning management systems that we use and the institutional policies that are in place you know force grading to look a certain way, right? right? So there's very little flexibility. Um, And often there, again, there's just not a consideration of what students do or don't know when they start the semester. Um, A more equitable grading uh, approaches to grading could be very, very simple. Again, straightforward, be very practical, but just giving students multiple opportunities to show what they know, right? Right. Right. Um, This can mean anything from, you know, as I just mentioned, can you tell me what this means in your own words? This could be an essay format. This could be a multiple choice test. This could be a one minute paper saying, what was this really about? Um, but I think the, the most important part of this particular uh, resource are the questions and considerations that I want all educators to, to take into consideration. Because again, one of the primary ways in which inequities show up in public education is through grades. Again, this is where personal meets structural. Um, A lot of these things that we think about in terms of uh, tracking, right? Um, There are subjective calls on what's the difference between a B and a C, a C and a D. Um, Do we assign extra credit? You know, these really nuts and bolts kind of things. But the end point of this is that at the end of the day, students are placed on slightly different tracks. And those slightly different tracks actually do have long-term consequences. There's actually really interesting research that shows that it is possible to predict uh, who will go to college and graduate from high or well, who will hi, graduate from high school and then go to college. We can start to see these differences around seventh and eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, so it, it's not like this, right. oh, this is a really abstract thing. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like it starts with nuts and bolts kind of things. Right. Um, so one of the questions, you know, does your schema emphasize the outcome or the process by which learning is demonstrated? Um, what kind of language do you use to promote uh, intellectual growth or right. is it really about um, continuous improvement? My favorite one, truly, can students apply what they're learning? Mm. You yeah. know, how much of yeah. what we actually teach is useful? Is it applicable? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it sounds very, very simple. But the last one, you know, are you meeting students with where, where they're at? Right. I, I would argue for a lot of reasons, um, we don't. Right. We, we truly, truly don't. And I think to our own detriment, we don't. 
No, I, I totally agree. And if I uh, might take this opportunity as one of your former students to talk about application, uh, I had to write a diversity statement really, really recently. Um, mm-hmm. And because of our your class, I had basically had a framework and a structure. And I remember one of the things that you talked about is that a diversity statement, for example, when you're going up for professorships and things of that nature, have to have practical substance. You can't just say a bunch of, I will do. And I think it may like, they have to have applied functions. You have to say like, I've done such and such in this context in my classroom and therefore it did whatever. And so like I was reading back over the diversity statement I wrote, uh, first semester of graduate school <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> and I was reading yeah, it and yeah. I was like this is absolute garbage <laughs> and I I'm, laugh- I'm laughing because I can relate you read I read stuff early on I was like ooh yeah, I can't, like, yeah, what I was <laughs> I doing <laughs> but to your point of it is it is it uh applicable is it practical does it actually stand up walk and chew gum inside of the body of your student. And I will tell you that because of the way in which your more equitable grading practice worked in classroom, I actually was able to model that when I was, you know, TAing. And then also as I've been instructing students, I was able to see that thing play out in real time and to understand Mm -hmm. what it meant to be able to give grace. So yeah, sometimes we have to have, you know, deadlines because, it's a necessity for a boundary, you know, we, there, that, that exists in real life. We can't say that that's not a thing, but is there an opportunity for us to use the deadline as a a statement of grace or is it that we're using the deadline as a punitive feature for folks? And so, um, yeah, just kind of to, 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 to rehash of something that showed up in my diversity statement. And so I was just very grateful. Oh, no, that that's great to hear. Um, that's really great to hear. And, you know, it, it still surprises me. Um, even, you know, we, the whole function of that course was to unlearn, to learn and to try to concretely apply um, a lot of what was learned right. and more equitable approaches to a classroom into a diversity statement. Right. And at the end of the day, a diversity statement for folks who don't know is really about is really anchored around what is your contribution to the context in which you're going to work. Um, And oftentimes that is around practical things that you've done, courses you've taught, your research, community outreach. Um, It could be certainly be committee work or community work. And then there's often a whole bunch of other um, smaller areas that you, this can certainly be applied. And, you know, it's amazing to me how much, you know, it's very tempting for people to use flowery language, but at the end of the day, you have to do something is, right. is really, is really what it's about. Is it really through, um, your advocacy for students? Is it really working, doing really good work in the community? Is it really around who you're putting in the curriculum? Um, like, like where does this show up? Where is this contribution? And I think where a lot of people struggle, um, in writing diversity statements are talking about, um, to, to slightly, you know, come back to this notion of, of race and racism or anti-racism is that you have to talk about yourself. You know, your experiences are your experiences. There's really, um, no way around it. And, you know, there's no need to apologize for your experiences. I think the real question is, is what do you learn from them? And then how do you apply what you've learned moving forward? Um, exactly that, that to me is, 
yeah, 101, where a lot of things start, a lot of really interesting and exciting things start. Well, Cisco, I think it's that time. Uh, you have been, as always, a phenomenal uh, interviewee slash co-host. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're cool too. You know, <laughs> it's been it's been fun. I'm really enjoying this. It's I'm really enjoying this. I am too. I am too. Um, Thank you for tuning in to Centering the Margins. If you liked what you heard, you can rate, review, and subscribe to Centering the Margins on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Be sure to check back next Tuesday for the new episode. In addition, be sure to go pick up Cisco's new easy read, How to Teach Contentious Issues, a practical guidebook for educators on Apple Books. Hey, Cisco, tell us a little bit more about that 30%. Absolutely. 30% of all proceeds will be donated to Durham Children's Initiative. Durham Children's Initiative's mission is to create a pipeline of high-quality services spanning from birth through college and career for children and families living in Durham, North Carolina. There are more than 65 partner organizations and thousands of community members who actively contribute to the initiative. It takes a village, and we at Centering the Margins want to make sure that the village is still here post-COVID. Please go find and buy the guidebook on Apple Books. Your money is going to a great cause. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Step right up and see the world's most amazing individual. Oh, fabulous. I think that you got to give yourself more credit, more more latitude. The fact that you possess the... Oh, man. You possess the... Oh, man. Oh, thank you, brother. That's... <laughs> That's, okay, that's so what happens see. when you go to church on Saturday. Instead of amen, you get the amen, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh... uh...